As we turn here, Isaiah 53, one of the most famous passages in all of the Old Testament, one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, is the most vivid prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Isaiah, and probably one of the most vivid prophecies, if not the most vivid prophecy of Christ in all of the New Testament, as far as His work and His central theme of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah 53 ties in with the last three verses of chapter 52 and are often read in conjunction with that passage of Scripture and is considered one of the servant's songs of the book of Isaiah, to be specific, servant's song number four. And so as we read it, we'll back up into chapter 52 and verse 13. Let's begin reading. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And many were astonished at thee. That means to be astonished, amazed at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Moving into chapter 53. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You can see the messianic theme building as you read through this chapter of Isaiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, that is to say speechless, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. 
He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, that is more reading than we generally do as we begin a sermon, but I wanted you to hear the scope of all that we just read before we go into our thoughts on this passage today, because this is, a, to be honest, a passage of Scripture that not only could we preach about one sermon, but you could find material in this chapter to speak for weeks and months, and no doubt for the last two millennia, men have devoted a substantial portion of their time in the pulpit to the expounding upon this chapter. If you had one chapter in the Bible to preach for the rest of your life, if you were to lose the Word and only have access to one portion of it, certainly Isaiah 53 would be in the top choices that you would pick to have to share the message of Christ with others. Now just to identify the suffering servant that you read about, to leave no shadow of doubt in your mind, as Isaiah writes of this hundreds of years before Christ, he undoubtedly is writing about the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know this? How can you prove this? The Jewish scholars throughout the Old Testament pointed to Israel as they read Isaiah 53, and they said that Israel was the suffering servant of the Lord. And they would read about this and learn about Israel's captivities or think about Israel's captivities and point towards Israel's sufferings and afflictions and bondage. But as you begin to read that, it unfolds before you in such a way that you ask the question, was, was Israel who bore our sorrows? Well, no, it wasn't Israel that bore our sorrows. Do we have peace with God through the bruising, the wounding, the chastisement, and the stripes of Israel? No, we don't have peace with God through the wounding, iniquity, or excuse me, the wounding, the bruising, the chastisement, and the stripes of Israel. And so as they would read this passage throughout their history as a people, every time they came to this passage of Scripture, they began to ask the question, who speaks the prophet of, of himself, of some other man, of a nation? Who is this great suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53? That question might be familiar to you if you're a Bible reader. You know, in the book of Acts chapter 8, God sends one of his ministers, Philip the Evangelist, to go preach. And he tells him, arise and Go down under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. This is Acts 8.27. He arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem for to worship. He's returning to Ethiopia. He's in a chariot. He's a eunuch, and... Since he's in Jerusalem, more than likely, this Ethiopian eunuch was not Ethiopian in his ethnicity, but he's of Jewish lineage in Ethiopia, made to serve Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, as a eunuch in her palace. Now, if you read the book of Daniel, you can see very vivid depictions of Israelites being carried away into captivity and forced to serve in the palace of another king, of another person. But he had been in Jerusalem, and it was obvious that, strongly implied, is it, that he's there for the purpose of worshiping God, 
And as he's returning home, verse 27, he came to Jerusalem to worship. As he's returning home, this question is on his mind, who is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? Who is this man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Who is this who his soul would be poured out unto death, made an offering for transgression? Who is this who would be bruised, who would be crushed, who would be wounded, who would be pierced? Who is the suffering servant of God whose visage would be marred more than any man that Isaiah speaks of? He's returning and he's sitting in his chariot. He reads Isaiah The Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Philip ran to him. And he heard him read the prophet Isaiah. This means that as Philip hears him, the eunuch is reading this aloud. He's reading this out loud. He's not reading in his mind as we often do, but he's reading out loud. Philip hears him reading Isaiah 53. He said, Understandeth thou what thou readest? The man, the eunuch, replies, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the Scripture which he read was this. Where are they reading? He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered, and he asked Philip, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Who is he speaking about in Isaiah 53? Now you heard that just a moment ago as we read verse 7 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living." teaches his death. This man is, the eunuch is wondering, is he talking about himself? Is he talking about another man? Is he, as the Jewish scholars of his day tried to lay claim on that? Think about the arrogance of that. This is about Christ, and they applied it to themselves. No wonder Jesus told them, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. These people were so narcissistic in their understanding of the word of God that even prophecies that related to and pointed them towards Christ, they applied to themselves as Jewish scholars, as people who were members of the nation of Israel. And the eunuch asked, who is this man? I pray thee, I beg you, Of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. Now as you know in... Maybe we can come back to this passage as we close our message today. They went on their way and they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch asked the question, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? If you believe in Jesus and you believe that Jesus died for your sins, then what God calls upon you to do 
is to be baptized. Here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, if you're wondering, where do we find this requirement of belief before baptism? Verse 37, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. Notice this very carefully. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. If all it took was sprinkling, if all it took was pouring, I'm sure that the eunuch had a canteen on the chariot. He was making a great distance of travel. And yet they both go down into the water. The timing of that was providential. God sends him at the certain point. They arrive at the water at the specified point. God is working in that. It was no coincidence that they, in the middle of a desert, happened to come across an oasis of water and go down into the water, both of them together, to baptize the eunuch. When they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And then as you see, Philip is found at several other cities passing through preaching. Isaiah 53 is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now beginning to look at the passage, chapter 52 and verse 13, we've begin this with the word behold. Now there are other times in the Bible where Jesus approaches and other men say behold. One of the most notable places is when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking to him on the banks of the river. He sees him and he says what? He says behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Behold him. Look at him. What is the job of John the Baptist in his ministry? To prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist prophetically was to come and to proclaim that God's anointed Messiah is coming to bear the sins of God's people. Behold the Lamb of God. What is the role of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in today's time? To proclaim to the world around us, Behold the Lord's suffering servant. Now, I can't teach you to know Christ, but I can point you towards Christ. I can say, behold Christ. I can teach you about Christ. I can preach Christ unto you. And as Isaiah is doing here, I can tell you to behold the servant of the Lord. Last week, we spoke about servitude from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6 and our study through 1 Timothy together. And so, you know, fresh on your mind is all that servitude, servanthood, slavery entailed in the first century. And you know the various ways that people became servants and all it meant to be a servant and how it was distinct and different from being a servant or a slave in the early United States. Notice that... When God, through Isaiah, speaks of Christ, He refers to Him as the servant of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. You come through to the end of chapter 53, verse 11. By His knowledge shall my righteous, what? My righteous servant justify many. We're learning about a slave of God who in his servitude would come into the world to suffer, to bleed, to be marred more than any man. 
As we begin looking at the specificity of his sufferings in verse 5, we'll see all the different ways that Christ suffered, the different types of language, the words that are used to describe the wounds that he experienced. This is a servant who would suffer. As the Jews would read this, many of them did apply it to the Messiah and many other passages that applied to the Messiah. They correctly understood. But you find passages such as Zechariah that says that the king comes. He's a king. He's victorious. You read of Isaiah 42. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he set judgment in the earth. You find these images prophetically of the Messiah as a conqueror, as a victor, as someone who wins Someone who is a king, someone who is triumphant, he rides into the holy city lowly, and yet at the same time, the imagery there is triumphal. But you also read these prophecies of the Messiah as one who suffers, as one who bleeds, as one who is striped, as one who dies. They would read these types of prophecies, and many of them came to the conclusion that there must be two messiahs. One who suffers and one who reigns. But there are not two messiahs. There is one messiah who first suffered and being victorious now reigns. My servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee. That means astonished. Now there are times that we're mildly surprised and there are times that we are absolutely astonished. In other words, that something that happens is so out of the ordinary that if you didn't see it with your own eyes, you might not even believe it. Have you ever been astonished? Sometimes you read of people in the Gospels that are astonished out of measure. Many were astonished, astonished at thee. His visage, that means the way he appeared, was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. This implies that this marring, that he is so beaten, he is so swollen, he is so abused, that He's hardly recognizable as a human being. And this is pointing to the time of the cross, pointing to when his body was broken, his blood was shed. As we think about, as we press into the communion service this afternoon, the breaking of his body symbolized by the breaking of the bread and the shedding of his blood symbolized, or the wine as it symbolizes the shedding of his blood, and the sprinkling of his blood. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle them with what? Sprinkle them with his blood. They are cleansed by the shedding of the blood of Christ. We've been not redeemed with corruptible things, silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. As we went through Peter's writings Last year, this was one of the themes that we read as we were in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
this word sprinkling unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. The sprinkling of his blood to a Jew brought in concepts, triggered in their mind thoughts of the priesthood in the temple offering the sacrifices and applying the blood of all the animals that were offered for sins in their day. All the which that could never take away sin. He shall sprinkle many nations. Now fathom the astonishment, if you will, of that statement to a Jew in the first century. He sprinkles not just the nation of Israel with his blood. This was the phenomenal, surprising, shocking declaration of John 3.16. That God so loved not just Israelites, but people out of the entire world. And that when they display their faith in Him, it proves, it declares that they are His children because no man can believe except they be born of God. You can imagine this ruler of the Jew who came to Jesus by night, Nicodemus in John 3, at the hearing of the fact that God so loved people out of the entire world, a word that the Jews used to describe Gentiles. How shocked he would be at that. Jesus, in his suffering, sprinkled not just people in the nation of Israel, but many nations. And I love this next statement. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. There is one king of kings and lord of lords. Now, that to me is a great irony. And I'm going to try not to be very political right here. Politicians are known for their speaking. In fact, sometimes you want to grab a hold of a few of them and say, would you just please be quiet? Those were not the two words that I was thinking. Would you please just be quiet? The kings of the earth shall shut their mouths at him. Who is king of kings and lord of lords? For that which had not been told them shall they see. That which they had not heard shall they consider. He's telling a day of a day when even the Gentile kings would hear of this King of kings and Lord of lords and they would shut their mouths at Him. They would bow their knees to Him. They would become followers of Him. Prophesying of even our very own day in which we live today when the gospel of Christ impacts people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue to the degree that even kings, even kings, are converted unto Him. As we studied through First Peter together, you might remember in chapter 2, we preached a message about praying for all men, for God will have all types of men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And therefore, we should pray even for kings and for all that are in authority. Paul is telling us that what Isaiah spoke of in chapter 52 and verse 15 is literally coming to pass right before their eyes in his day and has come to pass from that time since. Moving into chapter 53, who shall believe 
Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? This word report means news or tidings. If you wondered what the word tidings means when you read your KJV, I bring you glad tidings. It means news. The gospel is glad tidings. The gospel is news. The gospel is the report that we bring. And as Isaiah begins this chapter asking the question, Who hath believed our report? He answers that question with the next question. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now you listen very carefully to me. You have received the report, the gospel, because the arm of the Lord has been revealed unto you. You know truth because God through the Holy Spirit has revealed His Son unto you. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now just to comment briefly on this phrase, arm of the Lord, the phrase the arm of the Lord is a prophetic title for Christ. When you read in the Old Testament, the right arm of the Lord or the arm of the Lord, a man's strength is usually displayed in where? In his arms. We all joke about skipping leg day for a reason. You know, a man may work his upper body four times a week and maybe his lower body once a week because nobody cares about leg day, aside from the fact that it's agonizing for four days after. A man's strength is displayed where? In his biceps. Now, triceps are great too, but nobody walks around flexing triceps at little kids. When I grew up, as I was a little boy, my dad was a police officer and he worked out several days a week. He took all kinds of supplements. He was as large as most professional wrestlers that you see on TV. And so as little boy, little puny boy Ben, who was the exact opposite size of a human being as, as Dexter Winslet, the big strong police officer that everyone was scared of, I would brag and boast about my dad. My dad's so big, my dad's so strong. But Josh and I, when we had friends over, we'd be like, Dad, show him your muscles. Dad, show him your muscles. And it got on his nerves. But we'd pester him till he humored us. And so he would, his left arm was larger than his right arm, and his right arm was stronger than his left arm. However that works, I don't know. But he would pull up his arm, and he would, he would flex it. And he had like, no, no exaggeration, like 20-inch biceps. You know, I mean, this, this is a, a man like not quite as big as The Rock or some of these other wrestlers, but this guy was a monster of a man. And because of all that weightlifting, young folks, young men, and now he can't extend his elbows all the way straight. He walks like this, and he has knee problems. So just FYI... FYI, there is a trade-off on that on your joints when you become an older man. His strength was displayed in his arms. You see the strength of the man when he flexes his muscles and you see the size of his arms. The arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord. His strength. Now turning over to Isaiah chapter 59 is an example of this. This is... In multiple places in the Old Testament, we're close in Isaiah 53. You get to read this. He saw, verse 16, that there was no man, no man what? No man that is worthy to intercede on the behalf of his people. Isaiah 59 contains some of the most quoted passages of total depravity. Isaiah 59 speaks of... Our total depravity. 
Verse 7, for instance, their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Where's that quoted? Romans chapter 3, which begins, There is none righteous, no, not one. How many of you have heard Romans chapter 3 quoted in this pulpit? Every one of you. Every one of you. Romans 3 quotes Isaiah 59. In speaking of our depravity and the fact that we grope for walls like the blind, we are blind, we are lost, we are in darkness. God saw that there was no man worthy to stand in His presence, worthy to be an intercessor, and He wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore His arm brought salvation unto Him, and His righteousness, it sustained Him. Skip down to verse 20 as he gets explicit. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion and turn transgression, turn from transgression unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth. What are we reading about? Redemption. Who brings redemption? The arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord. You see, this is one of those passages that here we are a verse into, and and you could have sermon after sermon after sermon from Isaiah 53. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who believes the report? Those to whom it is revealed. You might remember when... Jesus asked the question to his disciples, Whom say men that I the Son of Man am? They begin to answer. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, brought back from the dead. Some say that you're Elias, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he asked the question, But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter, the first to speak, the first to blurt out his opinions, the opinionated, loud apostle that he was, blurts out, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered in verse 17 of Matthew 16 and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Why do you know that Jesus is the Christ? Because God the Father has revealed it unto you. If you feel the burdenings of Christ in your heart, if you feel compelled to Christ, If you lament your sinful condition and you yearn for Him, understand that He has been revealed to you. Blessed are you if His Son has been revealed unto you. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus spoke on this a number of times. Matthew eleven twenty five. at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and has revealed them unto babes. Does this mean that smart people don't have the gospel revealed unto them, but babies have the gospel revealed unto them? No. Babes here has reference to babes in Christ. In other words, those who have been born of the Spirit of God and as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word that they may grow thereby, as we read in Peter's epistle. God reveals His Son unto those who are born of Him. Now, while I should be very clear that there are many revealings of portions of God's Word to us as we study, this ought to happen every time you study. 
We pray to God, God, show me some of your truth. Make the word speak to me in a new way. I'm telling you, I've studied this word for many years. And there are new things every time I pick up this word in prayer and I study it. God reveals things to you. But the revealing of Christ to you begins when He quickens you from death and trespasses and in sins. He shows His Son to your soul and, his, and your heart. His Son takes up residence in your heart, crying, Abba, Father. And as we know, even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. Who hath believed our report? Well, those to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed believe the report. To believe, he must be revealed unto you. Verse 2, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. What an interesting statement is that. That coupled with verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is what the second person of the Godhead, God's eternal Son, became for our redemption. First of all, he grows up before him as a tender plant. Think of vulnerability. As we read this word, this statement, a tender plant. I have a couple of oak trees in my yard, and they are not vulnerable trees. The one beside my driveway, my children have painted. They have driven nails into. They have hit with a machete. It's probably been hit by vehicles at some point in its history. And there it stands as a strong oak. But this is a tender plant. It implies, again, vulnerability, a, a young plant, a sprout. Now, of course, we know that Jesus was not vulnerable to sin. But this refers to his form as a man. As a man, we are vulnerable. As a man, if you strike us, we bruise. If you pierce us, we bleed. And also perhaps his impoverished and rejected life. His impoverished life. As a root out of a dry ground, he hath nor, no form nor comeliness. That means beauty. No attractiveness. Now, Preachers debate whether this has reference to his physical form or it has reference to the fact that the carnal man simply finds nothing appealing about Christ. Or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto him. Perhaps both. This I will say. While we don't have a description of Jesus, he was so average in his appearance... When the soldiers come to arrest him in the Gospels, Judas Iscariot has to betray him with a kiss because they would not have picked him out in a crowd. We've all seen the movies. Jesus is a foot taller than everyone else. He has beautiful blue eyes and long flowing blonde hair and light skin and a glowing white robe. How easy would it be for them to walk up and see and identify Jesus if that's what he looked like? 
looking, thinking back to some of the movies I've seen of Christ from my childhood. Peter's this wild-eyed looking guy with curly hair and an unkept beard. And, you know, John's really young and Judas is real creepy looking. But then there's Jesus who's head and shoulders above and the most beautiful man on set. But that betrays what Scripture says about him. He was not identifiable. In other words, when you walked into a room, you didn't look at him and say, that is an attractive man, that's got to be Jesus. He had to be betrayed with a kiss because even the soldiers wouldn't have picked him out from the rest of the disciples. He looked like them, he was dressed like them, he was built like them. But when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Continuing verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men. Jesus was despised and rejected of men in his life. Jesus is despised and rejected of men today. Why is that important for you to know? In the upper room discourse, Jesus told the disciples of all the persecution they would experience in the days to follow. He goes on to say that there will be people who will drag you out of synagogues and execute you because they think they do God a service. And they do all of this to you not because they hate you. It's not about you. They do all of this because they hate me, Jesus says. They do this because they hate Christ. Jesus is still despised and rejected today. To me, that is one of the great proofs of the authenticity of our faith. A Christian who lives as a Christian ought to be the most peaceful person in the world. We talked about that multiple times in 1 Timothy, about how we're to be respectful people and kind people and loving people and patient people. And yet, in the first century, you read of accounts where the Christians, they didn't riot, they didn't war. They didn't fight back. They were model citizens, and yet the government around them executed them. Why? Because they despised Jesus. It's amazing in our country today, the panderers who are the most opposed to Christ. Just think about this. This is not politically correct, but this is a moral issue. You have people in our country today who team up with, on one hand, people whose lifestyles are contrary to the Word of God in a sexual way, and on the other hand, other religions who in their country throw people with such a persuasion off the roofs of buildings, and yet they team up in this country against Christ. Why? Because really on the same team. Two different flavors, two different versions of the enemies of Christ. Epicureans and Stoics were enemies of each other. And yet in the, God, or in the book of Acts we find where they team up against the Apostle Paul and his preaching. Enemies join forces against the gospel. There's been one thing that's unified people in this world. It's been a hatred of Christ. He's despised. He's rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Now, as we begin reading through the next portion of this together, one of the words that I want you to notice, just to observe, is the word we. It's easy as believers to look at the world around us and say, you despise him, you reject him, you hide your face from him, you esteem him not, you have grief, you have sorrow, you have transgressions. But when Isaiah writes this, he doesn't say you. He says we. Meaning that except for the grace of God, here's Isaiah as one who stands in need of a redeemer. I love the candidness of the scriptures. How do you think Moses must have felt writing about when Moses failed and God told Moses he couldn't go into Canaan's land? You know, the book of Deuteronomy. You know, Peter considered Paul's writings scripture, and Paul in one of his epistles writes about how he had to rebuke Peter. What do you think Peter said at their daily Bible reading when they went through the book of Galatians? The Bible is so real with our failures. Why does it do that? Because it, first of all, it's true, but second, it's pointing us towards Christ. The only hope we have of glory is Christ. As we begin to move into the what you could call the intercessory portion of this, he presents him to us as his servant, one who has suffered, one who's acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows that we all hide our faces from. We esteem not and he moves into the sufferings for intercession, for redemption. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we, esteem him, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Bearing our griefs, as we said, shifts the focus to imputation. Now, the word there that we want to focus on is imputation. Imputation. He takes our iniquities that we hide our faces from Him, that we despise Him by nature, that we esteem Him not. He takes all of our iniquities and He places them on Him. Look at these words. He hath borne our griefs. This means to bear a burden. B-O-R-N-E means to lift it up. This is the lifting up of another's burdens. He carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, which to me, and I believe very strongly, is prophetic of when Jesus is carrying his cross as he's being beaten, as he's betrayed, as he's being tried before men and nailed to the tree. He's in the process of making intercession for the sins of God's people, and yet at that very moment in time, even his closest followers, his friends, his disciples ran and hid they esteemed him smitten of God, stricken and afflicted. At the very moment that he's dying for them, they all ran and hid and thought that it was all over. You read the words of the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, and Jesus has been resurrected. He appears unto them. He's walking with them, and he asks them, Why are you so sad? Why are you so discouraged? And they ask, Are you not from around here? Have you not heard? Do you not know? We thought that it should be he who would redeem Israel. It's all over now. 
they esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And yet, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. As we look at verse 5, there's a few definitions I want to share with you. He was, first of all, wounded. Now, this word wounded is an interesting word. We think about a wound as a, an injury to the body, but it was a more specific type of wounding than that. The word wounded can be defined as pierced. To wound can mean to pierce. And so in Isaiah 53, 5, we even have a prophecy of the crucifixion. And while he's upon the cross, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. What happens? A spear enters his side and outflowed, poured blood and water. He was pierced with the nails. He was pierced with the spear. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The word bruised can imply crushing. He was crushed for our iniquities. There's a couple of ways that you can understand that. Of course, he was pummeled by men. And the word that the Gospels use is the word buffeted. They buffeted him. They surround him and they strike him with the hand. They pummel him. They beat him. They push him around. They bruise him, which is why his visage is marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. They beat him brutally. But we have to remember as we study the cross and the crucifixion that the greatest sufferings that Jesus experienced upon the cross of Calvary were not caused by the hands of men, but the crushing weight of sin being poured out upon him and his Father's wrath being released upon him as he hung upon the tree. He was bruised. He was crushed for our iniquities. I don't know how this took place. Scripture records that prior to his death, and you mark my word, redemption was not completed until Jesus gave up the ghost. There are men that have said that Jesus paid for all of our sins in the three hours of darkness, and at the end of that, before his death, there was no other work. Friends, if that were the case, Jesus would have gotten off of the cross. Redemption wasn't completed until Jesus died. But in those three hours of darkness... Whatever happened to him between father and son was done in such a way that God did not even permit men to see it. Crushed. Crushed for our iniquities. Bruised. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. In other words, what we deserve, he received. And with his stripes, we are healed. A stripe is a welt, but... As you know, before Jesus was crucified, what did they do to him? They tied him to a stump and the Roman soldiers took a whip and they struck his back. They whipped him and with his stripes we are healed. Continuing into verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. I've got about a half an hour to say about verse 6. We'll suffice with a summary. Whenever in the Bible you read about men being described as sheep, you're reading about children of God. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. In the resurrection, 
God raises all the dead and Jesus separates them as a shepherd divides between his sheep and the goats. He places the sheep on his right hand side and he says, Come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down that I might raise it up again. He says in verse 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I can pass through the shadow of the or the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because God is with me. Why? Because He's my shepherd and I'm His sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. I might borrow verbiage from Paul's writings to the Roman church. Where is boasting it is excluded. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're not here. We don't worship because we are better than other people. The sheep had gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has laid on him, imputed to him our iniquity. Now these past few verses have been presenting this thought of healing through suffering. We have healing through Jesus' suffering. The laying of our iniquity on Him, again, is imputation of our sin to Him so that He was judged as if He were guilty of it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 You know how to go there. God's Son who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Verse 7, He was oppressed, He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. And again, there's 30 or 40 minutes you could say about that. John 18, they come to arrest Jesus. Jesus says, Whom seek ye? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And at the pronunciation of the divine title, I am. They fall backwards to the ground as if they were dead men. At the mere power of the voice of the Son of God. Understand, this is the voice that created the stars, that created the light and separated it from darkness, that said, let there be, and there was. The same voice that raises the dead, the same voice that gives you divine life in Christ. And when Jesus speaks, they fall back as if dead men. He went as a lamb dumb before the slaughter means that he submits to this as God's suffering servant. He subjects himself to this when he had all power, all power to end it with a word, with merely a word. And yet he submitted to that suffering. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? This phrase taken from prison and judgment is interesting and likely has reference to the mock trials, the tyranny, the injustice. It was after these mock trials that he was, as we read in verse 8, cut off from the land of the living. 
For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked. He, as he died, stood condemned between criminals, men who were justly condemned, and yet Jesus was innocent, crucified between two thieves. And with the rich in his death, as Jesus died upon the cross, he was taken down and he was placed in Joseph's new tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, a wealthy man. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Here we come to the climax of this passage Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You'll notice, as we often point out, the word Lord here is in all caps. This tells us that it translates from the tetragrammaton, the four consonant name of God in the Hebrew language. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Lord, it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. Now, this is one of the most confusing and I would even say uncomfortable, painfully so, verses in the Bible. You read that and you think, it pleased the Lord to bruise his son? Did God receive some enjoyment out of the bruising of his son? No. This word pleased here has reference to the satisfaction of God's wrath. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. We find a description of this in greater detail. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prosper or prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God had a divine purpose in the suffering of his son. Think about this for me just for a moment. Galatians 4, in the fullness of the time, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent his son. Acts 2.23 describes it that according to his determinate counsel and foreknowledge. Acts 4.28 refers to it as that which God had determined before to be done. Now, please understand that God had no orchestration in the sinful actions of those men. They owned their actions, and they were judged for their actions. But in sending His Son to that death and suffering it to be, that was for a purpose. And that purpose is the redemption of His people. God had a purpose in that He bruised Him. Which also tells us that a part of the suffering of Christ, again, was directly from God Himself. It pleased the Father to bruise His Son. Some of the suffering came from God. In fact, I would say that the tremendous suffering came from God. And we didn't even behold it. That's a heavy message, isn't it? And I said that the purpose in, in saying all of this is to point us to this afternoon service. I want you to think about his suffering. I want you to think about his death. I want it to impact you. I want our hearts to break at the thought of our own sinfulness that caused our Christ to go 
to the cross. But I want to end this message with the glorious truth that it is finished. The year of Jubilee has come. Salvation is here. Verse 11, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge, not mine, not yours, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. What were the words of Christ upon the cross of Calvary as he cried out with a loud voice and gave up the ghost? It is finished. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. God says, I will be satisfied. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. If you love Jesus, if you feel the sting of your sin, you remember how we began this message from Acts chapter 8? See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Take up your cross, be baptized in his name, and follow him as a disciple, as that Ethiopian eunuch. Who shall declare his generation? Those who receive the report to whom the arm of the Lord is revealed.